We left off last session with the question of the 200-bed hospital kind of hanging a little bit in our minds. I did say that um, the end result was the decision to go ahead and build. And it was concluded that perhaps the council, which had said there, uh, a sanitarium should never be built in Los Angeles, it was just the wrong place, the, the thought was that a sanitarium is different from a hospital. And so perhaps there would not be, you know, the Lord would not object to a hospital being built in the, uh, in the city as he would have a sanitarium. Well, there's, there's definite truth to that. A sanitarium is not a hospital. They're, they're two different tools in some ways. But um, there's more to the story, as there often is. So <clears throat> we will pick up with costly words and the value of understanding that can come from them. Um, have you ever noticed how sometimes you open your mouth and say something that ends up costing you? <laughs> yeah, I've done that. Uh, maybe we say things that cost a lot of time explaining to someone why what we said didn't really mean what it sounded like what we said. <laughs> That's happened, right? It, uh, you may end up losing a friend, some of the words you said, okay? We're going to look at two occasions when someone, or two individuals acting in the capacity of profit made comments or wrote comments that ended up costing a lot. The uh, first one will be Jesus. Time, money, and even friends pale in comparison to what Jesus' words cost him. It goes like this. In John chapter 2, the Jews answered and said to Jesus, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you, will you raise it up in three days? But, John says, he was speaking of the temple of his body. Ellen White offers some insight into Jesus' reasons for making this cryptic comment. Christ did not design that his words should be understood by the unbelieving Jews, nor even by his disciples at this time. He knew that they would be misconstrued by his enemies and would be turned against him. At his trial, they would be brought as an accusation, and on Calvary, they would be flung at him as a taunt. But to explain them now would give his disciples a knowledge of his sufferings and bring upon them sorrow, which as yet they were not able to bear. And an explanation would prematurely disclose to the Jews the result of their prejudice and unbelief. Already they had entered upon a path which they would steadily pursue until he should be led as a lamb to the slaughter. And so Jesus offered no explanation. I mean, the comment, you know, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days, that wasn't clear. Nobody understood it. But Jesus made no effort to, to explain it. And those words just sort of hung in the air for about three years. But three years later, now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. 
Well, the Gospel of Mark gives a similar account. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. You know, it's a bad day when you can't get bribed witnesses to get their act together. You know, I mean, this is not going well. Um, not surprisingly, Ellen White has some comments on this circumstance as well. She said, early in his ministry, Christ had said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. In the figurative language of prophecy, he had thus foretold his own death and resurrection. These words the Jews had understood in a literal sense as referring to the temple at Jerusalem. Of all that Christ had said, the priest could find nothing to use against him save this. By misstating these words, they hoped to gain an advantage. The Romans had engaged in rebuilding and embellishing the temple, and they took great pride in it. Any contempt shown to it would be sure to excite their indignation. Here, Romans and Jews, Pharisees and Sadducees could meet, for all held the temple in great veneration. On this point, two witnesses were found whose testimony was not so contradictory as that of the others had been. One of them, who had been bribed to accuse Jesus, declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Thus, Christ's words were misstated. If they had been reported exactly as he spoke them, they would not have secured his condemnation, even by the Sanhedrin. Had Jesus been a mere man, as the Jews claimed, his declaration would only have indicated an unreasonable, boastful spirit, but could not have been construed into blasphemy. Even as misrepresented by the false witnesses, his words contained nothing which would be regarded by the Romans as a crime worthy of death. Patiently, Jesus listened to the conflicting testimonies. No word did he utter in self-defense. At last, his confusers were entangled, his, excuse me, his accusers were entangled, confused, and maddened. The trial was making no headway. It seemed that their plottings were to fail. Caiaphas was desperate. One last resort remained. Christ must be forced to condemn himself. Well, in the end, it was Jesus' own testimony that secured his condemnation. In answer to the high priest's interrogation, Jesus freely admitted that he was the Son of God. And that's what they ended up convicting him on. But Jesus' misconstrued statement about the temple of his body would come up at least once more on the cross. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Priests and rulers, with many others, taunted him with this false statement from the bribe witnesses. While he hung upon the cross, it was repeated in mockery by the scribes and Pharisees and echoed by the multitude. They that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. But though misstated, Christ's words were being fulfilled. Publicity was given to them, and they were made more impressive by the proclamations of his enemies. And so I ask, what is the purpose of all this? What is the value? What gain from those few words? Jesus was a very, very 
sharp fellow. He didn't make mistakes in what he said. What was the gain? Well, John tells us, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the words which Jesus had said. It was for the sake of those who should believe on him that these words of Christ were spoken. He knew that they would be repeated. Being spoken at the Passover, they would come to the ears of thousands and be carried to all parts of the world. After he had risen from the dead, their meaning would be made plain. To many, they would be conclusive evidence of his divinity. It looks to me that the only real gain to come from that misunderstood and misconstrued statement of Jesus was the eventual confirmation of the disciples' faith. Evidently, in heaven's perspective, it was worth doing. Even with the expense, the ridicule, the accusation, the, the whole thing, it was worth doing. There was a reason for Jesus' actions and comments. Now we go to our second example, somewhat more complicated. Back in 1899, another prophet of the Lord made a statement that was to be misconstrued and misrepresented. Like the words of Christ, this comment was taken up as a weapon against the Lord's messenger. Unlike the words of Christ, the real meaning and intended benefit of this comment has rarely, if ever, been considered. To be honest, I don't know that anyone has considered this prior to about eight months ago when I ran into it reading some documents. And I just made my jaw drop when I saw what I saw there. Though more than a century has passed since the words were written, perhaps there is still benefit to be gained in understanding the object lesson they embodied. To do so will require a little understanding of the surrounding history, which I don't mind. I hope you don't either. It was 1893. At the time, Ellen White was living in Australia, struggling to establish the work of the church there, while at the same time carrying a heavy burden for the leadership of the denomination back in America. For the Adventist church, the heart of the work was still in Battle Creek, Michigan. That's where you could find the General Conference, the Review and Herald, the Battle Creek College, the Battle Creek Sanitarium. But things were not going well in Battle Creek nor with many of the men in authority in the denomination. One of the many who were in spiritual decline at the time was John Harvey Kellogg. Out of his annoyance, and we talked about this before, but out of his annoyance with those who had opposed his work in medical missionary lines, Kellogg had taken upon himself the task of proving that he was correct, that he could do more work and better work than all the ministers of the church combined. He had begun to neglect the very work God had given him and had instead had taken up a work of his own devising. Ellen White could not just sit by and watch this all happen. She wrote this. The work in Chicago was presented in a vision given to me at midday. It laid upon me a burden which none could understand. I could not understand it. I was overwhelmed with the things presented. When I came to myself, I was like one stunned. Night after night, the picture was before me. I saw the investments you were making, the money you were consuming. Sister White, you bemoan. Somebody has set things before you in a wrong light. No, no. Things that no one knows have been presented to me. 
I have been made to understand the ambitious projects that have bound up in one wicked city means what should have helped to work in this new world and put us on standing ground. But all the necessities of this field which are kept before you seem to you of less importance than the great things you were creating. Should you carry out your own way, means would be drawn from the treasury to support the enterprises of your creation until the missions to which God has appointed a special work would be destitute of every facility for carrying on that work. Kellogg's medical mission work had started out well, <clears throat> but when he became determined to make a great showing out of it all down there in Chicago, his efforts became seriously imbalanced and fatally flawed, really. Very expensive. As a result of the growth of the church in the rest of North America, Australia and South America had been seriously hampered as a result of Kellogg spending the money. This was the situation when, in the spring of 1899, Ellen White was shown in vision an expensive building in Chicago used for various lines of medical missionary work. Alarmed at the loss of this expensive building, I'm sorry, I should read this first. There we go. At the time that I saw this representation, scenes that would soon take place in Chicago and other large cities also passed before me. As wickedness increased and the protecting power of God was withdrawn, there were destructive winds and tempests. Buildings were destroyed by fire and shaken down by earthquakes. I saw the expensive building above referred to fall with many others. Alarmed with the loss of the expensive building, Ellen White wrote Dr. Kellogg immediately in regard to the matter. It was this letter that would be used against the prophet. Now, interestingly enough, it appears that all copies of that letter have been lost. I've never seen the letter itself quoted. Everybody agrees that there was such a letter. There were three copies of, at least, of it at least at one point in, I forget which year, 1903 or something like that, I think. But by 1907, nobody seemed to have a copy of it. So what the actual original letter said, we don't have the exact wording. But it did say her concerns about this expensive building in Chicago. Okay, that was the point. Uh, unknown to her, this building that she had seen, well, no such building had ever been built. There wasn't anything like that. Dr. Kellogg found this a convenient excuse to reject her counsel and undermine others' faith in the spirit of prophecy. Ellen White accused me, Dr. Kellogg speaking here, Ellen White accused me of building an expensive building in Chicago, but we never built a building. Somebody told her that we did, and she wrote it out as a testimony. That became one of his favorite accusations. As a matter of fact, that was one of the accusations that he used in the last interview with him before his death, in 1944 or 7 or something, I forget what year it was, um, was Arthur White went and interviewed him and he said, your grandmother sent me this testimony about this building in Chicago that we never built. It hurt a lot of people and destroyed a lot of faith in Ellen White. For three years, from 99 to 1902, Ellen White had no concept of what was going on with that whole thing. But then in 1902, A gentleman by the name of Judge Jesse Arthur and his wife spent a part of the day at my home, Ellen White writing, 
We had much pleasant and profitable conversation. Among other things discussed was the matter of the representation that had been given me of an expensive building in the city of Chicago used for various lines of medical missionary work. I related how that when I was in Australia, I was shown a large building in Chicago, which in its erection and equipment cost a large amount of money. And I was shown the error of investing means in any such buildings in our cities. As I related some of these matters and described the building that had been shown me, Judge Arthur said, I can tell you something in regard to that building. A plan was drawn up for the erection of just such a building in Chicago. It seemed necessary to our work. It would have cost considerable money. Brother William Loughborough, that's the brother of J.N. Loughborough, of Battle Creek drew up the plans, and several men occupying responsible positions in the medical work met together to consider the matter. Various locations were considered. One of the plans discussed was very similar to what you have described. Well, this new information helped clear up much of the perplexity in Ellen White's mind about the instruction she'd received. In time, the Lord gave further clarification. She writes, Sometime after this, I was shown that the vision of buildings in Chicago and the draft upon the means of our people to erect them and their destruction was an object lesson, note that, an object lesson for our people, warning them not to invest largely of their means in property in Chicago or any other city unless the providence of God should positively open the way and plainly point out duty to build or buy as necessary in giving the note of warning. A similar caution was given in regard to the building in Los Angeles, note that, Repeatedly, I've been instructed that we must not invest means in the erection of expensive buildings in cities. Well, Dr. Kellogg was not in a good mood for object lessons, warnings, and cautions. <laughs> and so he didn't change his course any. And Ellen White would write, Repeatedly, it has been shown me that in many cases you have worked upon minds to undermine confidence in the testimony. After receiving a testimony of reproof from me, you have said, somebody has told her these things, but they are not so. Repeatedly, it has been shown... Uh, no, I'm sorry. There we go. Over and over again, you have told others how I sent you, once sent you a testimony reproving you for erecting a large building in Chicago before any such building had been erected there. In the visions of the night, a view of a large building was presented to me. I thought it had been erected and wrote you immediately in regard to the matter. I learned afterward that the building which I saw had not been put up. When you received my letter, you were perplexed, and you said, someone has misinformed Sister White regarding our work. But no mortal man had ever written to me or told me that this building had been put up. It was presented to me in vision. If this view had not been given me, and if I had not written to you about the matter, an effort would have been made to erect such a building in Chicago, a place in which the Lord has said we are not to put up large buildings. At the time when the vision was given, influences were working for the erection of such a building. The message was received in time to prevent the development of the plans and the carrying out of the project. You should have had discernment to see that the Lord worked in this matter. The very feature of the message that perplexed you should have been received as evidence that my information came from a higher source than human lips. It'd be very easy if, if they'd actually built a building for somebody to say, oh, Sister White, did you know they built a building? But the fact that it hadn't even been built yet, and she's writing to him, she's saying, you should have recognized that as, as you know, divine indication right there, brother. But instead, you have over and over again related your version of the matter, saying that someone must have told me a falsehood. Well, Kellogg wasn't concerned with somebody telling Sister White a lie. That wasn't the point. The point was somebody told her a lie, and she believed it and wrote it as a testimony. 
The point wasn't to say, oh, people are lying to Sister White. The point was to say, Sister White is making up these testimonies. And this time she got burned because she believed a lie. In other words, Ellen White's inspiration was a myth. She was wrong. John Kellogg was right. Well, some people believed Kellogg and some people believed Ellen White. What no one seems to have noticed was that the whole episode was to be an object lesson for our people. Let's go back to one of the statements we already read here. It said, sometime after this, I was shown that the vision of buildings in Chicago and the draft upon the means of our people to erect them and their destruction was an object lesson for our people. Well, what's an object lesson? You're supposed to learn something from an object lesson. It was warning them not to invest largely their means of property in Chicago or any other city unless the providence of God should positively open the way and plainly point out duty to build or buy as necessary in giving the note of warning. Okay, so the object lesson was to teach this lesson here. Okay, that's pretty good. Um, this idea of not building in cities is a point that the Spirit of Prophecy makes over and over and over in dozens of places. I'm going to, you know, stick my neck out and say that we probably have not followed that counsel of not building in cities as faithfully as we should have. And I do think it's a very important counsel. But there's nothing unique about that. Now, if that's the point, if this statement uh, this, this whole thing about the, the building in Chicago, if the only point of that whole episode was to tell us that we shouldn't be building in Chicago, it doesn't make sense to me that the Lord would allow that much grief to come from that misunderstood comment or that misrepresented comment. If that makes sense, I don't know. The idea we shouldn't be building in cities is a common piece of counsel from Ellen White. It's not unique doesn't strike me as significant enough to merit three years of perplexity on the prophet's part, nor would it seem like a fair trade on God's part in exchange for all the trouble Dr. Kellogg caused to that whole issue. So let's keep looking a little bit further here with the quotation. Next sentence says, A similar caution was given in regard to building in Los Angeles. Well, this is interesting. Chicago is a long way from L.A., is there any connection between these two cities that makes this whole significant, this whole thing significant? Well, just to kill all the suspense, I'm going to say yes, there is. <laughs> there is a significant link, but nobody seems to have paid any attention to it. Certainly not 100 years ago. So let's go there now. So we're looking for this connection between Chicago and L.A., Again, we need to understand a little history for this next information to make sense. You may recall that several slides back we read Ellen White's account of how she first learned that there had been a plan to put up the building she had seen in vision. It happened in June of 1902 when this Judge Jesse Arthur, he was a lawyer, he'd been elected as a judge for a while, but he was a lawyer practicing Battle Creek. He'd done some legal work for the, the Review and you know, the, uh, probably General Conference and for the Sanitarium, I don't know who all, but you know. Judge Arthur is the one who told her about the plans. And um, he had, um, let's see, let's go here, okay. Uh, oh, here it is. What had happened is that there was a short series of meetings in um, St. Helena, where Ellen White was living. Judge Arthur happened to be there, and 
took in the meetings and was particularly blessed. He, you know, something was, was a blessing to him, okay? He had quite a favorable attitude toward Ellen White when he spoke with her. That was the time that he and his wife visited with Ellen and Willie White, okay? After hearing the story of the plans, Willie asked the judge if he could write out the details of the episode, and Judge Arthur agreed to do so. His letter giving the details was written in August of 1902. Okay, so that's the background. And here's the letter. My dear brother White, I find it possible at this time to make for you the long-promised statement in reference to the action of the Board of Trustees of the American Medical Missionary College. Remember, that's Kellogg's school. Okay, there's going to be something here that will con be confusing, so we'll have to keep this straight. The AMMC is Kellogg's school, okay, in the spring and early summer of 1899, looking to the erection of a large medical college building in the city of Chicago. The facts are as follows. During the last of May, 1899, Dr. A.B. Olson, an Adventist guy who worked at the college, who was then secretary of the Board of Trustees of the American Medical Missionary College, prompted by Dr. Bayard Holmes of Chicago. Okay, got to trying to keep all these people straight. We've got A.B. Olson. He's an Adventist doctor. He works for Kellogg at the school. Okay, but Olson was being prompted by Dr. Holmes. Now Holmes is a non-Adventist. He was a famous surgeon down in Chicago who taught at the school on occasion, taught surgery for them. Okay. He was, seems like he was a pretty decent guy, and he was very helpful and very sacrificial in giving of his time and services to help the school. But Dr. Holmes urged Dr. Olson, who urged upon the board the necessity of the medical college becoming a member of the Association of American Medical Colleges in order to give Kellogg School an assured standing and position among the medical institutions of this and other countries. Okay, so we've got the AMMC, American Medical Missionary College, that's Kellogg School, being told that they need to join the AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges, which is the educational branch of the American Medical Association. Okay? In furtherance of this object, Dr. Olson was appointed a delegate to attend a meeting of such association, which was shortly afterwards to take place in the city of Columbus, Ohio, and make application in behalf of our medical college for membership. This he did, and such application was laid over to be acted upon at the next regular meeting to take place a year from that time. Upon Dr. Olson's return, he reported that the principal objection urged against admitting our medical college to membership was the want, or the lack, of a suitable building in the city of Chicago. It was then determined by the board to take steps at once looking toward the erection of such a building. A building committee was appointed and consisted of A.B. Olson, W. Kellogg, and myself. Dr. Olson was chosen secretary of such committee, and I was selected chairman. So. Judge Arthur was the chairman of the committee that did all this, so yeah, he should have known something about it. The committee met and immediately formulated plans for the purchase of a site and the erection of such a building. It was, I was instructed as chairman of the committee to open negotiations looking either to the sale or mortgaging of 
number 28, 33rd place, which the college owned, and otherwise taking steps to raise the necessary funds to purchase the site and erect the building contemplated. Dr. Olson was instructed to procure suitable plans for the college building, which he did. The cost of the site and improvements was to be somewhere in the neighborhood of $100,000 or possibly more. The committee went to Chicago, looked over several sites, and finally settled upon one on 13th Street, and negotiations were opened for its purchase. All this took place while Dr. John Harvey Kellogg was absent from the United States in Europe. Kellogg went to Europe you know, every few years to study the latest European medical and surgical techniques, so that's fine. So all this is going on. Dr. Kellogg is not there. After our plans were quite well completed for the going on of the work, it was thought advisable to await Dr. Kellogg's return to this country before proceeding further with the matter. I learned through others that after the doctor did return and was advised of what had been done, that he discouraged going on with the project. Just what reasons he assigned for doing so, I don't think I ever knew. Well, I don't want to make Judge Arthur look foolish or anything, but I can tell you why Kellogg discouraged the building. It's because he'd gotten a letter from Ellen White when he was over in Europe, talking about this expensive building in Chicago. Well, there's another document that sheds some light on this as well. I mean, Kellogg comes back, so what do you think? Should we go ahead and build this building? Or can we raise the money for it? And he says, no, I think we're going to encounter some significant opposition from a little lady in Australia. We better not do that, okay? There's another document that sheds some light on this whole thing as well. It is the minutes of a meeting of the Board of Trustees of the American Medical Missionary College that was held in June, on June 19, 1899. Okay? This is, again, Kellogg's Medical School. And they had some minutes in which they, you know, recorded their discussion of what this whole thing was all about. The meeting was opened by prayer by Dr. H.F. Rand. Dr. Olson then made a brief statement of his visit to the meeting of the Association of American Medical College and stated that the application from the American Medical Missionary College was not voted upon at the meeting but action was deferred until another year. He then emphasized the importance of securing a suitable building for the college to be located in Chicago. He stated he believed that this would aid greatly in putting the college on a favorable basis before the world and secure a desirable recognition. Dr. Olson said that it should be remembered that the chief reason why the Board of Health of Illinois did not recognize our school fully was because it had not a suitable building for clinical work and instruction. So, it turns out that the building that was never built, the one that Kellogg used as his favorite attack on Ellen White for many years afterward, was a pretty specific item. It was supposed to provide for clinical work and instruction. What sort of building would this be? It seems to have been something familiar to both the Illinois Board of Health and the Association of American Medical College, but what exactly would the building have been? And what connection does this have to Los Angeles? The only answer to these questions seems to be found in the experience of denominational leaders about 13 years later. The best, of this, the best account of this comes from D.E. Robinson's book, The Story of Our Health Message. He wrote this.
by this time, 1912, it had become evident <coughs> to all concerned that a clinical hospital <coughs> excuse me, was needed to provide the advanced classes of medical students with the practical experience necessary to meet all the requirements for graduation. Now, it should be noted that where it says requirements, those were not legal requirements. Those were the requirements of the American Medical Association and the Association of American Medi Medical Colleges. That's the educational branch of the AMA. That's the same folks who had been talking to the administrators of Kellogg's Medical College 13 years before, saying the same thing. You need a clinical hospital in Chicago. 13 years later, they were saying, you need a clinical hospital in Los Angeles. But on with the quote. <clears throat> Loma Linda and its environs did not have population enough to supply such a clinical hospital with the required number of patients. So in looking around for an area that could serve the need, the eyes of some of the brethren turned toward the city of Los Angeles. However, it was remembered that in 1901, Mrs. White had received instruction that it would be a mistake to establish a sanitarium within the city limits of Los Angeles. Would the establishment of a clinical hospital in that city be a move contrary to that council? It was felt by some of the brethren that the testimony of 1901 had reference to a sanitarium and not to a clinical hospital such as the needs of the medical college now required. <coughs> well, as a result of their deliberations on this issue, the leaders of the denomination and the leaders of the College of Medical Evangelists decided to follow the advice of the AAMC and build a 200-bed hospital in downtown Los Angeles. In time, it was named the Ellen G. White Memorial Hospital. This was a major turning point in our work. This one decision, more than any other, linked us forever after thus far to the practices, procedures, mindset, and even the goals of the American Medical Association. I've found no evidence that those involved in this decision saw any application of the object lesson of the building in Chicago that had cost Ellen White so dearly. The accusation that Ellen White was mistaken about the building in Chicago is still current today. It can be found on any decent anti-Adventist, anti-Ellen White website. Matter of fact, that's where I got my information. The question now is, what's the payoff? We've had more than 100 years of accusations against the prophet and against what she wrote. What's the payoff? In the case of Jesus' comment about the temple of his body, when understanding finally came to his disciples, it was for many of them conclusive evidence of his divinity. The payoff made the pain worthwhile. So, is there a similar payoff in the case of the Chicago building vision? Or is it all simply a historical curiosity? Does it mean anything to us? And if it does, what can we, what should we 
do about it? And I could probably just stop there and let you think about it. But I'd like to suggest, to my mind at least, that the understanding is that, yes, we took something of a detour with our medical work in 1912. Again, I'm not here to find fault with those who made that decision. They're better men than I am. But please, we can learn from our history, can't we? <laughs> and so that set the, uh, set the tone from about 1912 on. Loma Linda, of course, continued and developed. And it's really interesting to read how they developed. Um, for quite a while, well, it's interesting, from, from about 1905, uh, no, let's put this, from about 2005 to about 2010, give or take, Loma Lynn has been uh, celebrating a centennial, a centennial of the purchase of the property, centennial of the opening of this, you know, centennial of the doing of this. You know, it's, it's kind of a, a five-year-long centennial celebration. It's you know, a little different that way, but you know, I'm not sure if it's still there, but they used to have a timeline put up of, of significant events and developments. You know, it's really interesting all the way up to basically 1960, every major event on that timeline was, we rose up to this standard established by these guys, and now they think we're good. And we attained this level uh, you know, required by so-and-so, and now they think we're good. And it was, it was playing catch-up with, with the world, all the way up to 1960. In 1960, not that specific year, but in the 60s, that began to change. And it changed in two ways. It's really kind of interesting. In one way, there was a going back to the Loma Linda roots with the, um, the uh, California Adventist Population Study. I forget what they call it. What was the name of that? Anyhow. Um, where... Adventist Health said, there we go, thank you. Yeah, the, the number one type of thing. Okay, That started up in the 60s, and they started getting some results in. And all of a sudden, Loma Linda was on the map for all the things that we could have been on the map 100 years before, or 60 years before, of lifestyle, diet, exercise, you know, preventive medicine, all those things. All that stuff that had been, <laughs> we could have been documenting 100 years before, or 60 years before, sorry, getting mixed up. And that was one way that Loma Linda came to prominence. The second way that Loma Linda came into prominence was we'd finally caught up to the world in the, the high-tech, high-expense, um, you know, um, yeah, technical medicine. And we passed them. You know, when a bunch of Adventists set their mind to it, you know, it may take them 70 years, but they can do it, you know. And we passed them up, and Loma Linda became cutting edge. You know, oh, we got the... You know, we got this new technique, and we're, you know, was it Leonard Bailey doing the heart thing on the kids? That was cutting-edge stuff, you know, eventually culminating, well, I don't know, culminating, but, you know, the whole baby Faye thing, if you remember that. Um, that was, that was such cutting-edge technology or such cutting-edge treatment, you know, nobody's ever repeated it. <laughs> you know, maybe that was a dead end on that one, but nonetheless, you know, and we've got the proton collider thingies, you know, and we got, we, we've done a good job at high-tech, high-expense 
medicine. And then we've also demonstrated the low-tech, simple lifestyle superiority of, of the Adventist health message. You know, um, I'm going to hazard the guess that the one that was available to us all along is going to prove to be the more evangelistic of the two elements of noteworthiness. I don't mean to fault the other guys. And I'm sure that you know, if I had a child with, what is it, hypo-something, lastic left ventricular, whatever syndrome, I'd be more than thrilled to have some guy that knew how to treat it. You know, I don't, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm so open-minded, I get in trouble with some of my friends. I, I'm not even sure there's anything wrong with the whole baboon thing. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's a little weird. But, you know, if it saves a person's life, you know, I'm, I'm pretty open-minded, really. I'll just be honest, I'm pretty open-minded about saving somebody's life. but I don't think it's the tool God gave us for evangelism. <laughs> and that's kind of where my interest lies. So, in our haste to differentiate ourselves from Dr. Kellogg, I think we really lost some things. But all is not gloom. And our next session actually gets more cheery. <laughs> but that will be tomorrow. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Uh, many lessons to be learned. It's wonderful. It's fun. Uh, I like history. I like to uh, try to keep a, a level head and not get to thinking I'm so smart just because I figured out something after the fact that somebody wasn't able to figure out before the fact. You know, hindsight, they say, is 2020. I'm not even sure I've gotten that close, but, you know, anyhow. Okay, I hope that's interesting and helpful. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you. We just pray that you would be with us now. Take everything that we've said and studied and looked at and learned and all the impressions and make something worthwhile out of it all. Pray you'd give us wisdom that we can be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.